0: All right. Well, we didn't finish our notes from two weeks ago, so we're going to finish those. I went ahead and gave you another copy of them. I assumed, and I probably write this so, that you would not bring them back, which is okay. I don't expect you to tuck them away and carry them with you to church. Uh, last week, we began to look at what an apologist is. Uh, that is, one who contends for and defends the truth of God's word. Um, that's this page here. I, the problem is I have two different documents, and so one has numbers. It's not the one that has the one and two on the bottom, the wisdom. We're going to get there. Um, but the first two pages are a front and back, so it's four total pages, the one that begins one of my goals. We're not there. We're not on the page behind it. We're on, in the middle of the technically third page. The heading is Our Righteousness or Commitment to Scripture as a rule for life sets us apart. Now, one of the things I want you to see is that the preparation to be a faithful apologist is not just book smarts. You need to have understanding and wisdom and knowledge, and we'll get to wisdom more in just a moment, but an apologist is first and foremost a worshiping Christian, so that as you draw near to God and you are nurtured in his presence in worship, and primarily the worship of the saints together. So it isn't just pietism, but it is practical piety. Pietism was sort of a movement that grew out of the Jesus, the latest version of the pietistic movement, out of the Jesus movement in the 70s, and there was a lot of good things about that. But pietism is you got to do your quiet time every day, and if you don't do your quiet time every day, then you're not a real Christian. Or you might say, and I might ask you this question, if you were to wake up in the morning and you had 15 minutes to do Bible devotions, should you do it by yourself or should you do it with your children? Well, 100 out of 100 times, you should be doing it with your children. And so, or if you don't have children, obviously you do it by yourself. If you you don't have kids, well then, whatever. Or with your spouse. Um, We're talking about the commitment of the body to grow in grace together. And the place where we do that is worship. And one of the signs of that is this. If you're regularly absenting yourself from the worship of the saints, you're not going to enjoy the same kind of fellowship with those who are always in worship together. It just is the way it is. It's like parents when your kids get older and they're teenagers and you have dinner and suddenly they start missing family dinners in the evening because they've got work and other things to do. You feel that a little bit, that little pull, right? Because you're not setting another plate. Moms feel this especially. Dads are probably like, not another mouth to feed and save some money. But there is, there is a, a straining of that bond, so what you really want is just to get them back at the table so that thanksgivings and Christmases and all of those times when you come back together are incredibly sweet. Such is the fellowship of the saints, especially in worship. Now, as we commit to Scripture, and as we see Scripture as the rule of life, that means when we are building the church, we are using biblical bricks, biblical mortar. We're not borrowing from the world and saying, well, how would the world do it? This is what is often called the big, fast, and famous model of church building. Let's apply Harvard Business School logic to church growth. Well, you're not going to build a church. You're going to build what? A business, a corporation, where Jesus is the CEO and maybe the pastor is the CFO and the elders are the board of directors. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a faithful covenant community built with Christian, biblical bricks and mortar. And so when the world looks at you, they're going to go, ooh, that's that's a different kind of structure. And that's what we're talking about here. Our righteousness, or our commitment to Scripture as the rule for faith and practice, or as I say here, for life, sets us apart. So our righteousness makes us strangers and aliens. That is how we are strangers and aliens. You've heard me say this. This is our world. When when Paul writes and he calls us strangers and aliens, he is not speaking as a dispensationalist would speak. Like, just wait, we're going to get out of here soon enough, guys. No, 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 no. We are living generationally unto a thousand generations. God will, through time, build and establish his church. But it is strange because there are people that live on this earth who look at the church and say, you guys, there's something wrong with you. My encouragement is this. Lean into that. Don't try to be Christian like the nuggety inside and secular chocolate coating. The whole candy bar needs to be Christian so that you're not hiding behind this sort of a veneer of, hey, I can sit at the cool kids' table too, right, guys? So that you're basically doing the things that the world does while remaining in your heart set apart. But every part of you should be set apart. So our obedience to Christ, our maker, is strange. You're going to do things and not do things that are different from the way the world operates. Because what you're doing is you're building your life upon the rock. You're building your life upon the law of God and his revelation. Secondly, our righteousness brings opposition and suffering, and that is because one side cannot tolerate the other side. Our ambition as a church is to tear down the high places, the false gods, the idols, and the places where those things are worshipped. So that is abortion clinics, but it is also other elements and institutions that reflect something other than the total lordship of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of those types of places. And they become those places not because they simply exist, though abortion clinics are by definition temples to pagan gods where children are offered as sacrifices to convenience, right, to the pagan gods of this earth, selfishness, narcissism, and a lot of other things. Frankly, the devil. Right? They're temples to Satan. That's what they are. They are satanic temples. And I think we need to think and use religious language. Mormon churches. Jehovah's Witness churches. Any church, any place that does not exalt Christ as Lord. And and it can be anything if that is not the great objective. So one of the applications that I would use, which many may not is that Christians should strive to encourage those who are in authority over them in the public sphere to call for businesses to be shut down on Sundays as much as possible. And it's not just to say you should not transmit good and services on Sunday, but we want to give people who would ordinarily be working the freedom to come to church instead of having to work. Right? Does Harris Teeter really need to be open? Probably not. How does the Lord instruct Israel in the Old Testament? Get it done on Friday. Get it done on Friday. Now, maybe one grocery store state. I don't know. I'm just saying that at least a Christ, the Christian, the covenant community, should be striving to encourage people not only to obey the law of God, but to have the law of God as the law of every land. Yes, that sounds like Christian nationalism. But I'm not just saying for America. I'm saying the Sudan, Ethiopia, Australia, China should be places because is there a law that men can invent that is as rich in its blessings that promises what God promises by keeping his law? And the answer to that question is no, of course not. So it it brings opposition because the world does not wish to submit to the truth of God's word. Now, third point. Our righteousness is born of our devotion to Christ. If you don't love Christ, you will not keep his word. Um, at some point, if it's our children and they don't love Christ, then after they move out of the homes of the parents who seek to obey Christ, they will quickly throw off that law for something else. That natural man, not in a state of grace, but a state of sin, does not wish to be devoted to anything than his own or her own wants and pleasures. But our desires must be submitted to truth. And so when you are engaging with the world, and right now, I mean, you've been to abortion clinics. Are you warmly received by... Some people are indifferent, kind of. You're never warmly received, probably, except by the few that may, God is working in their hearts. But there is a major... Listen... Our own Department of Justice is going into homes of citizens and arresting them, using the branch of the FBI to imprison them because they are standing out in front of abortion clinics and saying, please don't go in. This has happened a number of times. The world, and when I say the world, what I mean is this. A group of people whose father is the devil does not want you to speak the truth. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then you need to wake up to the plot. That this is a cosmic, supernatural struggle that is played out in by the things we t- can touch. Does that make sense? Or did I lose you with their father is the devil? <laughs> well, they strove to do it, right? Right. But- I think oftentimes we look at the Puritans somewhat some people look at them romantically and some people look at them well that term Puritan is actually a derisive term. They did endeavor to do all of Christ for all of life but they weren't alone Um, and the fact that there's a group of people that we can look at and say that's what they strove to do does mean about the church in history maybe more people should be doing that maybe we should all be labeled to some degree Puritans And many Christians will say, that's legalism. I said, have you ever enjoyed a life? Like, have you ever felt the satisfaction that comes with obedience? And if you did, you would never say obedience is something we ought not to strive for. So it does make you strange. And it especially makes you strange, well, it isn't just something that young people enjoy, even adults right? Even adults, and especially adults because the stakes get higher when you won't stock gay tea, right? When you won't do those types of things. Not that the tea is, but that's what the marketing is. Huh? (laughs) So, um, our righteousness also requires an explanation. It is good to live a Christian life, but you are not a faithful missionary, you are not faithful salt and light if When being looked at and called a stranger, you don't tell them what makes your life different. This is what Peter says. Be ready to do what? Give an answer to the hope that lies within you. As people look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Why do you go to the lions? You can say, well, here's why I go to the lions. And oftentimes what that is, is the triumph of mercy in the face of violence, and it is most difficult. And without a buddy, without backup, without the covenant community, it is all the more difficult. right? Everybody dies alone. But up until that point, when you die, it is good to have people who are, that means you answer to God alone, who are encouraging. So if Derek gets fired because he, I know this probably wouldn't happen at a place like Hyatt, but if someone would get fired because they refused to bow the knee to the pagan god of the HR department, then he has people here at Reformation who can say, we got your back. He's got a diaconate who can say, how do we help meet some of your needs in the meantime? This is what Solomon speaks of in Ecclesiastes 4. When one falls down, another may lift him up. The greatest weapon you have in your arsenal as an apologist is a faithful life of worship together. Our righteousness also shapes our explanation. It is easy when people come at you with barbs to give what back? Match fire for fire. Match fire for fire. But our righteousness, our love and devotion, the spiritual gifts, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, kindness and gentleness, those are not qualities you find on social media, right? Twitter is not full of kind and gentle people. You can't can't be kind in, is it 200? I don't even know what it is. It used to be 140. What is it now, 220? You can't be gentle in 200. You can only be gentle face to face. And so it does require the saints to go out, and as those who have been forgiven, that shapes the way we talk. We ought to strive to be persuasive in one of the elements of our persuasion is the work of God in us. And then the last point there, our righteousness vindicates our explanation. Right? It's hard. This is why I, I think missionary dating is a bad idea. Do you know what missionary dating is? Yeah. Missionary dating is bad because basically the promise is, if you accept Jesus, you get me except the person you're saying that to has actually reversed that because they've already gotten you. So why do I need Jesus? And then you say, you know, things to that person, um, we need to keep this particular law, this particular law. And that message is always inauthenticated by the choices you've already made. In the same way, it's difficult to call people to holiness while you're, using profanities or talking about the same filth that they're watching or reading or listening to. There is a Christian aesthetic. And that Christian aesthetic is what? What does God say to Israel? As you're going into the land, be holy even as I am holy. He's very concerned with the way Christians dress themselves. And I don't mean just modesty, right? Put on some clothes. Watch your speech. But everything is to be inundated in the righteousness of Christ. Chiefly among all those things is the self-sacrifice of the saints, which is why I have that quote here under that section. Under It's attributed to Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. People actually do want something to die for which is really the greatest expression of something to live for. People want something to live for. And when they see a life of quiet contentment, live for the glory of God, this is what preaches. So that's why we have visitors that come into the church. it It is essential that we show them Christian hospitality. That's welcoming, inviting them to our homes, opening our lives to them, showing them what the fellowship of the saints looks like, if only it's just a piece, right? Just the tip of the iceberg, as it were. And so it's ultimately our willingness to do what is necessary, even if it is to suffer. All right, there's some review questions. You can look at those at home. And if you have those you know, well, let me ask, let's do it right now, because I do want to get to the next page, but we're making pretty good headway. How would you say worship helps you to prepare for an exercise of apologetics? This is your time to shine. Don't worry, the mic probably won't hear you. Well, on the front page of this, you, are, you become what you behold. So if you're in worship, you're not going to become a gay pedophile. Right? You're going to become you know, whatever you garbage in, garbage out, right? Yeah, Uh, and obviously, Derek, you're not actually speaking in hyperbole. We see that all the time. But really the most dangerous Christian is the Christian that isn't the poster child for the left. It's someone who has compromised on the essentials. It's the half-truth Christian, the one who refuses to stand up for things that do matter. Or they'll say, I'll go up to this point, but I won't go any farther when you've already given away the store. Um, so worship makes us like Christ if it's Christian worship Baal worship makes you like Baal in fact the psalmist states it in the negative twice those who worship them become like them and he's talking about woods of idol and stone what, what happens to a wood, of wood an idol of wood? gets thrown in the fire can you imagine worshiping such a thing? but we do this all the time and so the lordship of Jesus Christ does make us it does make us strange. So, what must this be exposed to on a regular basis if we are to be prepared as apologists? God's Word. God's word. What else do we find in worship? Prayer, sacrament, sacrament. the means of grace. The means of grace. I would even draw encouragement from others in being those that are like Yep. In fact, the Scots Confession speaks of the fellowship of the saints as the fourth there are actually more than those we call those the primary means of grace parental guidance is a means of grace all of god's grace is distributed to us through means right we are the means for each other so it's it's hard to, in the same way that you don't sign up in fact you can't even run the boston marathon if you don't submit a certain time you have to have a time under a particular sort of standard in a similar fashion it is very difficult to be a faithful apologist and not be prepared either by nurturing your soul on truth goodness and beauty or by loving the one whom you are seeking to take out into the world and i will say this you will never be fully prepared never because Even if you might be a weak Christian or a baby Christian or a new Christian or a nobody Christian, because the nobody Christians is how a church is built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The greatest Christians who've ever lived—you've never heard of. You don't have to be famous to be effective. In fact, fame tends to reduce your effectiveness, or at least your your desire to want to be bold. So, what is then the primary purpose of apologetics in the life of the believer? That's a bit more open ended. Very good. Yeah. To contend for the faith by being one who wrestles with God. What is the primary objective of every apologist as we go out into the world and interact with others? It's to worship together. Like our primary objective is that the people who are now against the church will be gathered with us in these pews singing with us. That's the only peace there is. Everything else is fake peace. It's just time waiting for an opportunity for conflict. But when one is conquered by the Holy Spirit, it it creates of that... Fellow heirs of the promises. That's the only peace there is. Everything else is sort of of a fake truce until things get really hard, which is kind of what we're experiencing right now. There was a bit of a truce, and then all of a sudden, when you wanted to go to worship and people thought that that was not safe, they labeled you something, right? A health, whatever, a science denier. All right, let's go to the new section. Worship and wisdom nurtured in the apologist. Now, we should really just almost have like a seminar so we can have more time for each lesson. Well, I think we're going to end up going slower than I had originally planned. That's okay. We'll take whatever time God gives us in this life. Um, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9. Proverbs may be the greatest handbook for Christian apology because when you live a life of wisdom, you are of great value to your fellow neighbor. If the goal is to claim your neighbors for Christ, then you must have something to win them for and with. Uh, in the book of Proverbs chapter 9, we read of the way of wisdom. Now, Solomon personifies wisdom as a she because he wants us to see that wisdom is not merely a set of intellectual propositions or syllogisms, but that wisdom is the knowledge of God which, we have, which he has given to us, and we are to pursue it like a man pursues a love with, not abandon, <laughs> but with great fervor and desire. And this is what he says. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, all of you at some point are or were and continue to be in some fashion simple, let him turn and hear As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, "'Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning.'" The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, me, your days will be multiplied, and years of your life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. Now you can look at some of these points on page one. Wisdom is laid down. Wisdom is not the invention of men. It is not novel. Wisdom was laid down When God breathed and spoke and made all things, that is the wisdom of this world. It exists with God for all eternity, the knowledge of God, God's own knowledge. But what he has done in creation is not merely make material. He has designed all of creation to function according to his own righteous laws. The laws of thermodynamics are righteous, Because they are made by God. They were from God. And so as we endeavor to live in God's world, we do not make it up. We live according to what God has said. And so all knowledge is the discovery of something that belongs to God, that he has revealed. You cannot know the things he has not revealed, but you can know the things that he has. Are there things that we don't know that God has revealed? I mean, look what the Hubble telescope's doing. Every day, it's going and revealing something new about creation. We're learning about nebulas, about all of these things that are, I mean, they just blow your mind. But all of that is laid down already. And so wisdom is a woman in this way, in the same way that folly is. There's also a lady folly that we read of in um, verses 13 and following. And they are both beautiful, and they both sort of sing to you and ask you to come into their houses. And so, a life that is hidden in Christ is a life that should be intent on seeking wisdom and virtue in the house that God has built. What is often confusing, and the reason why deception is deception is because sometimes we don't know which song will lead us to the better house. And so as the world, the flesh, and the devil are at work, they're not ugly on one level. They are actually quite lovely. There is an aesthetic of sin that is often not seen until it has been enjoyed. That's what the writer of Proverbs says, a man who returns to his own sin is like a dog who comes back to his own vomit to eat it. But when you're that dog and you see that vomit, it doesn't look like vomit. It looks like steak, kibble. It's actually quite enticing. But once you've tasted it and you've felt its full effect, you go, oh, that, that was not what I thought it was. How then is that process a limit interrupted? How do we see, in fact, that that isn't kibble? It's, it was kibble. <laughs> it's now something else. The Word of God tells us. Warning signs. Don't eat that. Don't go there. That's what Proverbs is. Don't delight in the pagan parody. And if we are not committed to the Word of God and wisdom that is laid down, we will find ourselves digging out cisterns that cannot hold water. So, not only that, but wisdom is ancient. It exists before us. You are not new, and neither are your ideas of rebellion. You will go the same way every sinner has that says, I will throw off the shackles of God's divine revelation, and I will say, God is dead. Now, Kant was actually lamenting that in some fashion. But especially the men that came after him, they're happy that God is dead. And they live as though God is dead, but God is not dead. And that is why the unwise get their just deserts, is because God is just. And so, wisdom is older than you; it's older than all of us. And there's something very appealing about that. Not only that, but wisdom is hospitable. It 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 nourishes and enriches the souls of men and women, of course, people. And she prepares this table, this banqueting table, and it's all good food. So when you invite someone to come and worship, what you're inviting them to do is feast and sup with Christ at his banqueting table. I want you to think of Proverbs 9 when you think of the Lord's table in contrast to the tables that the world sets, or Lady Folly. So, as you are endeavoring to prepare yourself to be an apologist, you need to understand that you are, as a pursuer of wisdom, following after God, seeking to think his thoughts, building your life upon the rock so that you might receive from him what is needed. And the testimony that you delight in it is that you are not a fool, that you are not a scoffer. That's what he says next. A Christian is one who should seek to be correctable. Have you, ever, have you ever been corrected by a peer? Not a parent or someone who's a superior, but a peer. I remember when I interned at Matthews, Nathan Trice was the pastor then. He's still the pastor who's been there for over 20, well over 20 years. I showed up to teach adult Sunday school in flip flops. Bad idea he looked at me and he says, do you not take this job seriously? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, why would you ever teach God's word in flip-flops? Now, people may debate whether or not, you know, whatever. Maybe you live in Key West or Hawaii. It's a little bit different. (laughs) They were rainbows. They were leather. The point he was making was you need to think of the teaching of God's word as a very serious thing, and you ought to dress for the occasion. That was one of two. The second was the way in which I responded to someone at the church. And both of those moments of correction were the wounds of a friend. But the wounds of a friend are much worse than the wounds of a total stranger. But those wounds were there to heal, to correct and I could have said, I mean, you know, he says it, and you know the feeling? Your ears get really hot, your face turns really red, and then you just want to go crawl into a hole. That's the first reaction, shame, guilt. And then you go, okay, maybe he has a point. And what's the point? To honor Christ in everything you do. Especially if you want to be a minister of the gospel. Honor Christ in everything you do. And so wisdom is there for our taking, but we cannot go, <sighs> whatever. I'm going to do it, as Frank Sinatra says, my way. I'm going to do it my way. And so we cannot forsake correction. We must embrace wisdom. But know this, that correction, hold on a second, is always at a place of hospitality and welcome. God corrects us while we are at the table with him. I'm using a bit of a metaphor. It is always in Covenant fellowship with him. Yes. If we connect these two ideas, would you say that the correction wherever it's coming from is a means to train our hearts? Absolutely. So, to these yeah. Two together, yeah. So that we want take and not vomit. Yes. Because when you're five, all you want to eat is paint. Absolutely. Five? I don't let, I don't let my I ate raw cookie dough last night and I loved it. <laughs> I'm like, I could just do a whole meal out of this. <laughs> yeah. You, you're the at, are Okay, well, I, I want to be and not get to Yeah. So to, to continue that, apologetics is having eaten in the house of wisdom and supped with the Lord. We are going out into the world And we are saying to our neighbors and our friends, and maybe total strangers, our neighbors, people that live around us, that we run into, let's eat here. Come eat here. And of course, you are going to get people, verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. That means they will return your warm invitations with derision. Um, If you want to see an example of this, um, go watch a YouTube video where Doug Wilson is talking with um, the, a group of students at the um, Kinsey College for Sexual Studies at Indiana University. And it's a two-hour question and answer, wherein he is, he is litigating the teachings of Scripture against unbelief, and every single question is, why are you such a hateful bigot, you hateful bigot? Biggie, 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 bigot. Right? That's every question is sort of laced with not a well-intended question, but just vile accusation. And he's just sort of standing up there. Just unfazed. The way he got there are two ways. Number one, he's standing up there knowing that he is an ambassador for Christ, and even while the world calls him names. Christ is saying, well done, well done, good job, keep it going, let's go, keep going. The other is, you just got to do it. You get used to it. Like the guy that's been in four military tours versus the guy that's never seen someone get their head blown off. Right? There's a way in which you, not hardened, but accustomed to the things of warfare. And so what we ought to do is, in our apology Strive to be unapologetic. That is apologetics without apology. And I use those words differently. To give a defense knowing that what we hold fast to, that the meat and the wine and the table from which we have eaten and then invite people to come to is the table of God. All right, if you have questions, ask it after Sunday school because there is a company of children waiting outside the door for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us then to be faithful apologists, ambassadors for the truth of your word, that you might strengthen us and prepare us for the fight. We pray in your name. Amen.